The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we continue to analyse the fallout of yesterday's alleged drone attack on the Kremlin. We hear from our senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant and photographer Heathcliff O'Malley, who are on the ground in the east of Ukraine. And we welcome back to the podcast Ukrainian political analyst Aliona Hilivka. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 4th of May, one year and 69 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant and photographer Heathcliff O'Malley on the ground in Ukraine, foreign reporter Genevieve Hall-Allen, assistant comment editor Francis Dernley, and political analyst and former Ukrainian MP Aliona Halivko. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Yeah, hi David, hi everybody. So the fallout from... Yesterday is still going on. Russia seemed to be properly caught on the hop. And I know, you know, hey, I don't want Russia to to prevail here, but I I don't think that's overblowing it. Russia has accused Washington of masterminding the drone attack on the Kremlin and said that it it was carried out by Ukraine, but at at Washington's, under Washington's orders. So uh, Dmitry Peskov, Kremlin spokesman, said... Attempts to disown this both in Kiev and in Washington are, of course, absolutely ridiculous. We know very well that decisions about such actions, about such terrorist attacks, he was getting on, back on message there, about such terrorist attacks are made not in Kiev but in Washington. This is, all, uh, this is also often dictated from across the ocean. We know this well and are aware of this in Washington. They must clearly understand that we know this. But look, they, somebody needs to advise these people on strategic messaging because at the same time, as he's saying that and, and pinning it all on on Washington, you've got Russia's ambassador to the US, Anatoly Antonov, saying the US did not find it possible to recognise the obvious thing. It was a terrorist action planned by the Zelensky regime. So look, these guys are all at sixes and sevens here. They don't know how to respond to it in any other way than a, than a bully does, which is to go around hitting people. Uh, they, their comms are all over the place. But in terms of retaliation, that's, that's exactly what they have been doing. So they launched a load of drone strikes last night across Ukraine, including Kyiv. Ukrainian Air Force said in a statement, the invaders launched up to 24 Shahid 136 and 131 attack drones. The Air Force of Ukraine, in cooperation with other air defence units, shot down 18 attack drones. Now, just very briefly... Um, The difference between a Shahid 136 and a 131 is that the 131 is older. 136 is is about half uh, half as big again, not not necessarily in in dimensions, but in but in in mass. The Shahid 131 came first. It's smaller. So the range of the 131 is about a thousand kilometers. The 136 is double that. And the warheads are 10 to 20 kilograms for the 131. And again, double that, 20 to 40 kilograms for the 136. So 136 is just the modern, the more modern variant. Now, Sergei Popko, who's the head of Kyiv's military administration, he said a statement on Telegram, tonight the aggressor again launched a comprehensive air attack on the capital. 
in the capital. The alert lasted more than three and a half hours. And then he added all the missiles were destroyed over the capital by air defences and there were no casualties, although there was a lot of debris scattered across the city. Further south, the Black Sea city of Odessa, 12 of 15 drones were destroyed by air defences, but the other three did get through, hit a university compound uh, with no casualties. That came from Ukraine's southern military command. And there are images on social media purporting to show the tail fins of some of the drones that landed on Odessa with the words for Moscow and for the Kremlin written on them. Now, elsewhere, still still in the south, in the Hezon region, as Heathcliff just said, the, the, the death toll from the strikes last night is now over 20, are confirmed to have died in shelling. So not, so not drones, we think, but shelling. This came from the office of the president, and they said uh, 46 people also injured. So that was, uh, that was from, from yesterday. Outside of Ukraine, just one other point to, to bring up to date. So the U.S. Department of Defense has announced uh, the latest security assistance package for Ukraine. That is the 37th such drawdown since August 2021. And uh, this latest package, which is about $300 million, includes HIMARS ammunition, artillery and mortar rounds, small arms, weapons and, and ammunition, anti-armor capabilities such as TOW. The TOW is tube-launched, optically-tracked, wire-guided missiles. Quite old, but they, they still work. Very good. And Carl Gustav and handheld anti-tank weapons. They also sent Hydra 70 rockets. So these are 2.75 inch diameter, fin stabilized, unguided rockets used in the air to ground role. So aircraft, helicopters and, and jets fire these fire these rockets. They are, as I say, unguided, but they're fin stabilized. So they're, they're, they're little darts. So they are uh, not precision by any way, but 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 not completely. You know, they, they do generally go where you, where you expect them to go. And uh, and also a part of this package, demolition munitions for obstacle clearing. Now that obstacle, the, the demolition munitions, and bearing in mind in recent months, so March and January, I'm thinking Germany and the US sent mine clearance vehicles and uh, bridge, uh, armoured vehicle launched bridges, AVLBs as they're known, based on the M60 Patton tank. That's from the US but also the, the Germans sent stuff based on the Leopard 1. So all this stuff is for obstacle clearing. So today, in this part of the package, there's demolition munitions for obstacle clearing, and that's on the back of a load of big vehicles that can get over obstacles or get through minefields. So, hey, helpful when you're trying to get through minefields and over other obstacles if you are, I don't know, about to launch a counteroffensive. I'll take a pause there. Thanks very much, Tom. Roland, I know you're on the ground. Where are you? What's the, what's the news? I'm on a road in, um, I'm not sure which region of, of, of Ukraine we're in at the moment. We left Kiev this morning. We're heading frontline woods. I will keep the exact direction under my hat for now. We are off to, to do some reporting. Relatively early on this trip, I only arrived in country with um, the telegraph photographer Heathcliff O'Malley, um, but that's, that's our status. Thanks, Roland. Um, of course, the big news from yesterday was this uh, drone strike on the Kremlin. You've written an analysis for the telegraph on that. What was your, what was your take? My, my basic take is it's quite unusual. It's interesting. There's a lot of debate about whether whether or not this was a false flag staged by the Kremlin as an excuse for something, um, whether it is a new wave of mobilization in Russia or some kind of dreadful future strike they're going to carry out against Ukraine. And the counter narrative is no, this was a Ukrainian strike, another example of their remarkable ability to strike deep in inside Russia. I don't have any hard evidence either way, and I think both both scenarios are relatively plausible. I can see how they would work out. I think the 
the clear thing is that the idea that this was an assassination attempt to kill Vladimir Putin is <laughs> just bonkers. I mean, it's just it's it, it's absurd. I mean, these are relatively small charges. They exploded harmlessly over the roof. No one was hurt. They didn't even try to go into a window. Whoever did this, whether it was the Ukrainians or the Russians, it was a demonstrative strike. It was meant to be seen, basically. Um, it was meant to show that this can be done. Regardless of whoever did it, whether the Russians were setting up an excuse to do something or whether they've been surprised and are embarrassed by this, I, I think we can expect some kind of very public, you know, a high-profile response from the Russians for this because they've, they've kind of got to be seen to strike back. Roland, I know you can't stay long, so just one more question from me, if that's all right. What are your first impressions on, on this trip? You've been in the country for a few days. What have you seen? Well, it's kind of interesting. It's spring. I mean, I, I, I drove into Ukraine a year ago at almost exactly the same time of year, and it is a characteristically warm Ukrainian spring. It's a more continental climate than Britain, so lovely, big clouds. The oilseed rape is coming into bloom, so you've got those classic photographs with the Ukrainian flag across the landscape, um, things like that. In Kiev itself, on the surface level, I'm not talking about the deeper kind of economic troubles, which are definitely there, but on the very surface, it really feels like a like a city getting back to normal in a way um you, you can go out and have dinner in a very swanky self-consciously cool restaurant and not see any camouflage anywhere someone was saying to us the other night you know there's two ukraines there's the ukraine at war and the ukraine at dinner or at least at least the kiev like that so definitely a sense of normality in the capital but you know it that, that's a different question elsewhere and obviously there is this big question about when will you know, will there even be a counteroffensive? And that's part of the reason we're here, is to kind of be around if it happens and, and to report as best what we can if it does. And just very quickly, how is uh, Heathcliff, our photographer? We're doing pretty well at the moment. I mean, yesterday, after the news of the Kremlin strike, I think we were both feeling a little bit tense. And I went for a, a walk around the streets whilst Roland was filing and just slightly apprehensive in case anything happened and I was ended up on Maidan Square and these two men dressed in sort of yogi bear outfits came up to me and wanted to me to pose for a picture with them for a little bit for a handover of cash and um, afterwards I just said look make sure you stick close to the subway because there might be a, a big event coming after this assassination attempt and literally 30 seconds after the sirens went and I, I, for one, moved into the subway for a little bit just to make sure it wasn't one of these very fast-moving Kinshal missiles, which don't really give you any warning at all. And then we got woken up again last night in the small hours of the morning, and there was a, a few loud explosions, several loud explosions, but apparently that was all anti, um, anti, uh, was it counter? Anti air defences. Yeah, air, air defences destroying drones or missiles that are above Kiev at the time. So, yeah, it, it was a tense day. But um, as Roland said, Kiev itself, I mean, it, everybody's out in their, in their spring designer clothes and it all feels fairly um, peaceful there. You know, a bit a huge contrast to what happened in Kherson yesterday with over 20 dead in multiple strikes by the Russians. Well, thank you very much, Heathcliff and Roland, for, for joining us. Best of luck with your reporting. Do come on again and do stay safe. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Genevieve Hull-Allen, thanks so much for joining us again. You've been following President Zelensky's Scandinavian trip. He's now in the Netherlands. He was speaking at The Hague earlier today. What did he say? 
Hi, David, and good afternoon, everyone. Yes, so President Zelensky has been in the Netherlands in The Hague today, which in a speech that he gave, which I'll speak a bit more about shortly, he called the capital of international law. So, yes, he visited the International Criminal Court, the ICC, and met its president, Judge Piotr Hofmanski. Now, this is particularly significant because the ICC issued an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, in March for suspected deportation of children from Ukraine during the war, which would be a, a war crime. And following this arrest warrant, countries which are you know, members signed up to the ICC have said they will arrest Putin as soon as he steps foot on their territory. I mean, countries that have, have, have said things along those lines include Austria, Germany and Ireland. And um, an ICC prosecutor, Karim Khan, has visited Ukraine on several occasions to investigate what is going on there. So Zelensky visited. The visit, we were told, has la- was lasted less than an hour and there were no details of what was discussed in particular and so on his first official trip to the country he then President Zelensky gave a speech in The Hague and he used this speech mainly to call for a special tribunal he called for um, in quotes a full-fledged tribunal to be created which would hold Russia to account for the crime of aggression. The president of the European Commission Ursula von der Leyen had said previously that an international centre for the prosecution of the crime of aggression in Ukraine would be set up in The Hague so there have kind of been rumblings about this before but in a really powerful speech that he gave this morning, Zelensky said, there should be responsibility for this crime and this can only be enforced by a tribunal. He added, only one Russian crime led to all of these crimes. This is the crime of aggression, the start of evil, the primary crime. There should be responsibility for this crime. Now, War war crimes are already being investigated by the ICC, as I said, but the general crime of aggression, there is no mandate for that to be investigated. So this is a, a, a bigger ask from Zelensky. He then went on to say of the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, we all want to see a different Vladimir here in The Hague, the one who deserves to be sanctioned for his criminal actions here in the capital of international law. And he added, I'm sure we'll see that happen when we win. And so his Zelensky's visit to the Netherlands today came after what I was speaking about yesterday on the podcast, which was Zelensky's surprise visit to Finland for a one-day summit with Nordic nations. Now, that was kind of just getting going as we were recording yesterday. So there are some more details out about what was discussed and what um, Zelensky and his Finnish counterpart said in a press conference. So firstly, the Nordic nations said that they supported Ukraine in its efforts to become an EU member. And Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark and Iceland in a joint statement said the Nordic countries will continue their political, financial, humanitarian and military support for as long as it takes. Probably sort of what was expected to be heard from those Nordic countries which were, which are particularly affected by what is going on in Ukraine and Russia's actions there. Mr Zelensky in a press conference thanked Finland for its continuous support of, and in his words, our freedom and territorial integrity and sovereignty. 
And then the subject of fighter jets came up. So in the past, Ukraine has repeatedly asked for fighter jets to, to help protect their skies. And Finnish President Ninista, apologies for my pronunciation there, said that Finland couldn't give up its existing jets because of its own geographical location in response to, to questions to, to the pair of them by journalists yesterday. However, Zelensky went on to say that he was sure we'll have aircrafts and said that in the past Ukraine had had to prove itself on the battlefield before receiving more advanced military support um, and cited a few examples and he added, we will conduct offensive actions and we will receive aircrafts. And then a kind of strong statement from Zelensky, just the last one from that visit that I'll, I'll touch on. He said, I believe this year will be decisive for us, for Europe, for Ukraine, decisive for victory. Thanks, Genevieve. I know there's one more story staying, staying in the Nordic countries you want to touch on very briefly. Yes, so this this was something that also um, happened in in what came out of Finland early this morning, but actually was was based off of something that happened yesterday. So yesterday, Russia complained to Finland about vandalism of a Russian consulate on the Orland Islands in the Baltic Sea. Now, this is an autonomous region which is located between Finland and Sweden. And for a little bit of context, it's it's demilitarized, and its demilitarized status dates back to the Crimean War in 1856. However, there has been a fair amount of debate in, in the region about its the Russian consular presence there since the invasion in February 2022. Now, the Russian foreign ministry said that a group of people had thrown an explosive noise device and other items into the territory of the consulate, causing damage to the building. They say that this happened at some point between April the 20th and May the 1st, although this, so the Russian foreign ministry announced this yesterday, which coincided with Zelensky's visits to the country. The foreign ministry went on to say in a statement, the perpetrator's actions posed a direct threat to life and health of staff of the Russian mission. Now, we've been told that local police are investigating the incident and had identities of those suspected to be involved. In the police statement, they said that a mailbox had been torn down from its stand and a beer bottle had been thrown, resulting in a window panel being broken. And the Finnish foreign ministry had said the case is regrettable. So a little bit of bubbling tensions in that region there. Thank you very much, Genevieve Hull-Allen, for coming just to talk us through some of the stories leading the uh, World News live blog, Telegraph's live blog, which we would commend to all listeners to go and follow during the day. Thank you very much, Genevieve, for your time. Francis Durnley, can I come to you next? Um, There's been a lot said about these, I think we should go back to it, these, these drone strikes on the Kremlin yesterday. Can you talk us through some of your thoughts on this issue? Thanks, David. Sorry to miss the podcast yesterday on what was by all accounts, a pretty extraordinary day, but I was in a briefing with Western officials, to borrow Dom's term. I do want to comment further on these drone strikes, as you say. In my view, it it matters less who is responsible, though I do find it rather hard to believe that two drones could have got through Moscow's extensive air defences, but rather how they'll be used by Putin to serve his purposes. We've already seen, of course, the attack drones on Ukraine overnight, including over Kyiv. We've seen the Kremlin press service proclaiming it as an attempt on the president's life and an act of terrorism. The Speaker of Russia's upper house has demanded Russia take revenge by employing weapons that are capable of stopping and destroying Kyiv terrorist regime. The Russian ambassador, which Don was of course talking about a moment ago, his remarks that punishment will be harsh and inevitable. This is, this is helpful for 
for Putin in many, many ways. And yes, whilst it's true, and this is something that Roland highlights in his analysis, that you've got critics of the Kremlin in Russia, like Igor Gherkin, saying, you know, this is quite a humiliating thing. The last time the enemy bombed Moscow is in 1942. Nonetheless, this is something that Putin can use and use effectively domestically and in other arenas. Such incidents, of course, in history are used by regimes as justifications for repressive measures. And the most obvious example, one I'm sure that leaps to the mind of many a listener, is the Reichstag fire in Germany in 1933. As with this incident, there was uncertainty about who precisely was responsible, though a Dutch communist was blamed and the Nazis used the attack as a pretext to wage war internally on the communists in Germany. And there is already evidence, as I say, that Putin is doing the same. He's using this in order to repitch the war in, for his propagandists as, as something existential and something that's extremely dangerous. The other important impact of this, which isn't being discussed as far as I can tell, is what it's doing on the international community. The Kremlin, of course, has consistently argued, and this is something we've talked about at length in the past, that Kiev seeks to escalate this war beyond its own borders. And so this incident will alarm the more nervous countries. And regular listeners will, of course, know to whom I refer. Ultimately, events like this, like the missile that landed in Poland several months ago, can can lead to reassessments of the direction of travel amongst European capitals and amongst diplomats and senior leaders. It could change nothing, but it could change everything. You never know the, the sort of the decision that might be made off the back of this. And the optics matter enormously. Something like this does stay in the memory. And so we will be monitoring this story and its implications very closely because it matters. And it matters in ways that perhaps haven't really been fully appreciated. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Um, Aliana Hilovko, thank you so much for joining us. Can I come to you? What's been the reaction to these strikes in Ukraine? Thank you, David. Nice to join the Telegraph team again. The reaction to the drone strikes in Ukraine has been quite resolute and concrete, shall I say, and it definitely echoes what Francis was just now saying about how dangerous this narrative is, about Kyiv going above and beyond and just making this pretty daft strike at Kremlin. So most likely, and, and that's where Ukrainian officials, policymakers, analysts and military experts agree that it does look uh, like a false flag operation. That is the prevailing opinion and that is actually something that's been reiterated and there are several signs that indicate towards that. So first of all, it doesn't make much sense for the Ukrainians to just make a random attack on the Kremlin, especially when it was a known fact. And I'm saying a known fact because Ukrainian intelligence has proven to be quite effective and well embedded in, in Kremlin. And even the general Kirill Budanov has said many times that it takes probably about two to three hours for the communication channel to be and, and the information to be delivered from Kremlin's walls into Kyiv with exactly what is going on, what is being planned, and what's discussed in those high offices of Kremlin. So I'm sure that Ukrainian intelligence knew that Putin was not there, that he was actually in his little dacha house, probably hiding in the bunker as per usual. So it doesn't really make much sense to create that performance. And when I'm saying performance, you can actually even look at 
the visuals of the explosion and the way it was filmed. Uh, we have a beautiful shot of the Kremlin. We have all the 9th of May, the, the majestic victory day in Russia coming up. And that will be the background for, you know, Ukraine, the evil enemy, tried to strike us, uh, try to attack his majesty, Putin. And yet they failed because we're almighty and powerful. And just reiterating that message on the back of the, the great victory day that's, you know, about to be celebrated on the 9th of May. And with all of the Pabeda Besi, the term that was even created in Ukraine many years ago, and, and them Russians capitalizing on the memory of war and trying to sustain that image of a great nation that fought off Nazis and fascism back in the day, whatnot, everything that they've been using and, and the narrative that they've distorted so vastly in in the last nine years of war against Ukraine. So that serves their purpose perfectly, in fact. A, to create a false flag operation to undermine uh, the Western allies' resolve to help Ukraine and to supply Ukraine with everything it needs ahead of the counteroffensive. Luckily, as soon as that's happened, Blinken has kind of dismantled that attempt straight away by saying that, you know, Ukraine has its own right to defend itself, its own territorial integrity in the way that it finds plausible. So that doesn't mean that the U.S. supports the strike on Kremlin, for example, but it definitely hits back at the narrative that the Kremlin tried to embed into the Western society and to create the division amongst the Western allies to support Ukraine. Because we have heard many, on many occasions, actually, Germany saying that, you know, we're providing tanks to Ukraine, for example, or the Irish Tea, any weapons and ammunitions that they've supplied so far but with one condition that they will not end up on Russian soil. And that is certainly not Ukraine's intention. That is beyond us. We just literally want to fight off our territory and protect our people, the people that are targeted and hit and, and killed every single day, just like we've seen yesterday in last night's strikes and the death toll among civilians, not just the soldiers, just going up tremendously. And second of all, it's the, the 9th of May that's coming up, the great victory day and everything that that entails with them trying to capitalize on their, their past glory and try to kind of drag that past glory into a, a very much failing present and the future. Because A, that would justify any aggression and atrocities that they would now commit against Ukraine, that anger, generate that anger amongst the population to try to, you know, mobilize their population that's pretty ambivalent and almost nihilistic and doesn't unfortunately have its own political stance. It's whatever they're being fed by propaganda. So to kind of mobilize them against Ukraine yet again, mobilize them against uh, NATO and the US, as we've seen, because obviously they don't want to recognize that they're failing and that they're losing war purely to Ukraine. They always want to say that it's not Ukraine we're fighting, it's actually NATO and the United States who we're fighting. So that all ties in very nicely into this pre-victory day parade. And some analysts in Ukraine are even saying that, that perhaps Putin is so terrified of actually getting assassinated, that perhaps there's a lot going on around him and in his inner circle. And the situation is getting that dire for him 
with with those threats that he's even considering not showing up for the Victory Day parade, especially considering that no other countries and partners, I think, besides, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's only the president of Kyrgyzstan who's confirmed that he's going to be attending the Victory Day parade. Not even any other former Soviet Union state, CSTO member, no one from Central Asia, no one from Caucasus, no one from the global south on that alliance that they really try to promote these days that is allegedly supporting Russia. So perhaps Putin is also looking for an excuse to get out of the big parade and not to be there present physically, maybe make an online statement or whatever and just get over that. So in a nutshell, forgive me for the long rant, but it is definitely not something that Ukraine will be up for because it's clearly not a very smart event, not the best way to spend all of our most valuable ammunition that literally we would rather spend it on the front line. And it definitely is aimed to undermine everything that Ukraine and that allies are doing now ahead of the big counteroffensive. Thank you very much, Aliona. Just quickly from me, could you talk a little bit about the emotional reaction that you may have detected across Ukraine to, to those to those images of, of the, the Kremlin, the the yeah, the, the, the sort of the working house of Vladimir Putin being struck by a drone. What, what was the emotional reaction of Ukrainians to that? I think initially the emotional reaction was quite positive and uplifted. It was maybe reminiscent of the visuals of the Moskva cruiser getting sent in early days of war. So initially, I think the Ukrainians would rejoice because that's essentially everything that every Ukrainian would probably want to see now for Kremlin to burn down, not just as a symbol of current aggressive Russia, but also as a symbol of a repressive Soviet Union and over a century of horrible things that they've been doing to Ukrainian people and people of all Soviet Union, really. But essentially, when you look at the video and you see how clumsy that looks and you're not quite sure what exactly has happened, whether it was a drone or how exactly did it get blown up and, you know, the the red flames and whatnot. It just doesn't look, I wouldn't say realistic, but it doesn't look feasible. So I think that kind of very brief euphoria went away quite quickly when people started putting two and two together and realizing that if Ukrainians were to do that, that would be in a much more effective and significant way. So that kind of little flash that didn't really mean anything, didn't lead to anything. Um, People got over it very quickly. Thanks, Aliona. Dom, did you have a question? Yeah, thanks. Hi, Aliona. Great to hear from you again. I I mean, I I was very sceptical yesterday, and I still think I am, or rather, even if my scepticism has waned slightly, I'm I'm still very, very cautious about saying that this was uh, anything other than a false flag. And the timing is is what's still doing it for me this time in the morning. What do we say now? It was just after two in the morning. So it was over 12 hours before the news broke and the, the footage arrived with sort of at the same time as Kremlin comment. So, you know, I think that that is right. That is very telling. But I just I just you know, playing devil's avocado for a moment. There is a huge downside for Putin to allow this idea to spread of Russian air defence incompetence. And I just I just ask you to address that point, please, because that I mean, that is a that's a big thing. And secondly, why why was there no footage last night on Russian state TV? Russia one, I think Channel one NTV. They had archive footage of the Kremlin. They talked about the attack, but they used archive footage. And, and if this was 
some effort by Russia for whatever for whatever means. I don't know why they didn't go didn't go the whole hog, you know, didn't put out allow the footage to be used. So so if you could address those two points, please. And then if it is a false flag, why? What What's coming next? Thanks. I think it's very telling that they didn't show it on the national TV because Russian propaganda always goes two ways. And it's quite different, actually. At times it's the same, but it's tailored. I wouldn't say carefully tailored because their propaganda is just so clumsy, especially recently, that it doesn't make much sense. But it goes both ways. It goes externally towards the Western audience, towards Ukraine, and it goes internally for their domestic audience. So it's very telling that they actually didn't even risk to go anywhere near to showing to the Russian population the images of something burning about the the great majestic Kremlin palace and any threat posed to their great leader that there's just no better leader in the world. They don't want to embed that visual into anyone's heads because over the last year, and you've covered it quite widely, Dom, as well, there have been a series of sabotages, arson instances against you know military commissariats, against logistical routes, uh, rain lines. The opposition and those sabotage groups within Russia are still working. It's not just operations conducted by Ukrainian special forces, which Ukrainian special forces did take some responsibility for some of the ops, especially targeting airfields, logistical routes, uh, warehouses and, and all the supply chain logistics. But others were clearly conducted by Russians because they were conducted all over the country from Siberian Far East all the way to St. Petersburg and and the border of Ukraine in, in these areas. So they were definitely very cautious to keep the Russian population away from any ideas and to stay away from undermining the great might of the Kremlin, of the symbol of authoritarian state. So it is very telling that they kind of touched upon it to insert the idea that the West is very aggressive that, you know, Ukraine and its great allies, meaning the United States and NATO, who are the other side of the world, the great opponent that, again, Russia is not just fighting Ukraine and losing the war to Ukraine. It's facing much greater opponents in the face of NATO and the United States. So they mentioned that, but they definitely stayed away from putting the visual in and almost giving people ideas that, you know, the regime could be undermined at any time and that that's possible. And when it comes to, you know, undermining the air defense in Kremlin, again, it does show that the air defense is actually not that great because how would uh, the drone or whatever it was, according to them, could get so close to the Kremlin? I think it should have been, could have been shut down way sooner. So it does look like a very clear full slack operation. And if you look at that video that you've described yesterday and, and today again, with all of those banners, 9th of May, the great victory parade and, and whatever, it's almost like a perfect visual for them, for the full slack operation. With that visual, that's towards internal audience, with the whole full slack operation and saying that Ukraine is attacking Kremlin and you, Western allies, have said so many times that we will not be targeted, there will there'll be no Western weapons on the territory of Russia, that Ukraine will not go this far, you know, the infamous red lines. 
and whatnot. They're definitely trying to undermine the unity of the Western partners because the United States took a very strong stance from the very beginning and Blinken rushed to make that statement and uh, dedicate another $300 million of support to Ukraine. Uh, whereas we know that in Europe there are many different other opinions. Not everyone is on the same page. We can look at Germany and France. Obviously, Nordic states and, and Northern Europe is much more supportive of Ukraine and even its accession to NATO uh, than, for example, Germany and France, because they still have historically close ties to Russia and probably, presumably, will try to, to keep them close once this is all over. So that was definitely targeted towards undermining the whole effort of providing Ukraine with everything it needs ahead of the counteroffensive, because we did see that that took quite a long time for the Western allies to get together and to dedicate all the long-range weapons, which are crucial and essential. And then there's another debate about providing fighter jets, which I think they're still coming, according to some people, even here in Westminster and, and number 10 and, and in the United States, that the planes will be coming. But again, it's all a matter of time. And it only takes one single instance like this of alleging that Ukraine is striking Kremlin without really having much ammunition and weapons of its own to just do the, that long-awaited counter-offensive, to maybe break all of that effort and that consolidated decision in the West to provide Ukraine with everything it needs. So I think they're just trying to undermine the counter-offensive. That's the main purpose of the false flag, as always. Oh, it's fascinating. I mean, it's a hell of a hell of a risk. Now, I promised Francis and David that I will only ask one more question, but I've I've got more than more than one. But I will only ask one. You know, so I'm not going to ask you whether Roland's comment earlier on that there's Ukraine at war and then Ukraine at dinner is fair and ask for your opinion on what impact that might have on society. I'm not going to ask that. If you choose to answer it, that's entirely up to you. What I would ask is to pick up on a comment you've just made there about the red lines. Do you, do you think this is this is Russia, if this was a false flag, really trying to stick a wedge into that sort of Obama era, red line, Syria backtrack and just cleave it apart? Do you think they're really trying to double down on that, on the on the red line issue? I, say, I accept that they might be trying to drive the allies apart and the external partners and supporters of Ukraine apart but are they do you think they're consciously trying to draw create this narrative that the west is not good for their promises the red lines will not be will not be um upheld i think it's almost like a, a, a final attempt because you know they've they've tried to do that for the whole year of the war and even before that when they were if we go back to the geneva summit between putin and biden in 2021 and him inserting himself into that narrative and talking about Ukraine as, you know, the subject that needs to be sorted. And now all of a sudden Ukraine is the center of all the Western decision making and is treated as equal and decides whether to share the information or not, how, how much to share, despite all of the support, weapons, finances, humanitarian aid that it's received from the Western countries. It managed to create this unity again. It, it gave NATO another purpose. It's now causing, I think, a great reformation of the UN that is, I'm sure, will be coming maybe after this war because it's a massive bureaucratic body, but it does need to be reformed. So Ukraine initially galvanized this support not just for itself. It's, 
it's given the West a new purpose. It reminded that it's too soon to get too comfortable after the Second World War, just because we haven't seen the war on the European continent for so long. And, you know, you're right in saying that perhaps on the back of that Iraq war and, and everything else, there have been some tensions in the West and disagreements. But as always, it takes something to be really close to you, even geographically, even Ukraine being in the center of Europe and, and seeing everything that's being almost com committed to it and its people that, you know, the World War One style war, when we look at the trenches and of the deaths and the casualties, it took this much sacrifice on Ukraine's behalf to galvanize that support. And I think that is something that really worries Putin and Russia and his, I would say, quasi-allies, because it's not quite an, an alliance around him, that it's not just the West's support for Ukraine with weapons temporarily for this war. It's also the unity of the West. And when the West is united, and let's say that the West is a very theoretical term because it includes many countries, it is at its strongest. It can impose sanctions against Russia. It can definitely paralyze its regime, not the country itself, but its regime. It could definitely tackle the authoritarian regimes all over the world. And that's, I think, what they're trying to, to kind of target as much as they can. But they do see that it's the final attempt, because no matter what's happening in Ukraine, even, you know, there are talks about, again, everyone's tired of the war. How much longer is it going to last? You guys on this podcast always talk about everyone's expecting this one final counteroffensive and then that's it. People are going to be done with it. The Western officials have said many times that, look, we're going to support, support Ukraine for as long as it takes. And that's exactly what Russia has been trying to, to target and kind of destroy so that there is no unity and Ukraine fails and generally the whole Western alliance fails so they don't have the strong opponent. I hope that answered that question. And just briefly on Ukraine, I'm very happy to address that because I have friends back in Ukraine. My family obviously still lives there with my brother fighting on the front line. And it's it's a very different reality because I talk to friends who are very safe and well in the west of Ukraine. And they're telling me the same thing, that look, restaurants, bars are, are open. People here in the west, in the west of Ukraine are operating as if nothing's happened. Everyone's back to a little like political arguments and quarrels. The restaurants obviously are open. Everyone's going out. But it is in itself a good thing because the economy needs to function. I mean, Ukraine has lost so much and so so much money has been poured in from, from the Western allies just to upkeep the macroeconomic stability, that that almost is necessary. And being at the state of war for such a long time, for over a year and really atrocious war, just for the mental health of the people, I think it's essential to let them switch off every now and again. And that needs to be understood. Of course, people who deal with war on daily basis. And trust me, all of those people who go to restaurants, every single one of them has someone who they've either already lost, a family friend, a university friend, an acquaintance, anyone who's lost their home, who've relocated to the West, probably will never come back home to Ukraine, has uncertainty about their jobs. That is still very, very much present in the society and, and pertaining. But we do have that spirit of defiance and just going on and, and keep living regardless and, and trying to make, to get those little bits and pieces of our broken lives and put them together 
they might not work necessarily perfectly at the same time. It might not be the perfect, stable, good life, but bringing all of those pieces that are still functioning together and trying to make the best of it, that's essentially all we can do at this stage. Thanks, Eliona. It's good to hear your voice. It's been a while. Just wanted to ask your reflections on the possible timing of this. If it is a false fag operation, do you think it could in any way be related to Zelensky's visit to The Hague? And of course, the fact that he's flagging Putin's involvement in war crimes. Do you think that could be connected? Have you read any analysis that might be positing that view? I haven't read any analysis of this, but it's very symbolic what he said in Hague today as well, saying that we didn't attack Putin, we will leave it to the court. And that has been a very much prevailing stance of Ukraine, that we will go through our existing legal means to target and contain and eventually imprison the bullies and the criminals. Um, That's exactly what, you know, all of those horrific videos that we keep seeing online that Russian soldiers are posting about beheading Ukrainian soldiers, castrating them, tearing apart their bodies, etc. That's all targeted to provoke Ukraine for similar aggression. And we're just not falling for that. We've already heard Medvedev, former Russian president, saying that, you know, now we definitely need to assassinate Zelensky, as if this is the only time they they were waiting. So um, until we we allegedly attacked Putin and tried to assassinate him, Zelensky, as if Zelensky was fine until then. We knew that he was always a target and he will always be a target. But it's very important that Ukraine definitely rise rises above it. And President Zelensky reiterated the point that we don't need to assassinate anyone. The court, if it functions well, if it is effective, similarly to NATO being effective, to UN being effective, again, we're going back to the point that Ukraine now mobilizes the whole Western world, its institutions, and almost reinstates their values and the right direction and and work that they were meant to be doing. Same with International Criminal Court. That's their job after issuing warrant for arrest. Their next job is just to get him and get him to the court hearing and imprison him eventually for all the crimes that he's committed. So I think it is a perfect time in going to Hague. I think that visit was planned regardless of a Russian false flag operation because it's it's quite symbolic that he went from Finland in, into the Netherlands, were both really great allies of Ukraine since the start of the war. And it's just a perfect timing with highlighting that Ukraine will not go down to those really imperfect and clumsy efforts, but will go down the, the international rule of law order because that's essentially what we're fighting for. Thank you very much, Aliona, and thank you, Dom and Francis, for your questions. Are there any other updates from any of you? Shall, shall we go to our final thoughts? Francis Sternley, why don't you start? Thanks, David. Well, we spoke last week about the cancellation of immortal regiment marches across Russia, and I want to end with a story in The Guardian on yet more cancellations of significant parades, the ones that Aliona was referring to earlier. At least six Russian regions have scrapped the 9th of May Victory Day parades that, of course, mark the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany amid fears over Ukrainian strikes, with a region 400 miles from the border being the very latest to cancel. The governor of Saratov announced the parade would not go ahead because of these safety concerns. 
I do think this is very significant. One cannot overstate the importance of the Second World War in the Russian national memory. Victory Day has gradually become a core linchpin of the country's modern identity. I cannot overstate the size, scale and frequency of monuments to the Great Patriotic War in Russia. When I was there several years ago, I remember my guide who said that she used to have to report to the KGB in the Soviet area, but that's a that's a different story, saying that for many Russians, the war still feels like something very recent. And I don't mean that in the way that's comparable with here, say, in Britain. We talk about the war all the time. We reference Churchill. It's part of our living cultural memory. But it's not visceral, I don't think. And yet there's a, a real lucidity to the memories in the Soviet Union, perhaps understandable given the scale of the losses. Tens of millions of soldiers were killed uh, and, and civilians too. So it's, 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 it's understandable in that sense. But I think it's also something that is manufactured too. Um, and for reasons we've talked about in the past, given the injection of moral simplicity to an extent, a justness to the Russian state that perhaps it lacked under the Soviet Union, given that it collapsed. So it, it, it's manufactured, but also, of course, has a resonance when you've lost so many people uh, in, in such a short period of time. And of course, it's also very relevant, this for understanding the war in Ukraine as well. Putin has cited the war numerous times when discussing Ukraine, notably referred to the Ukrainian leadership as drug-addled Nazis. He uses the war, the Great Patriotic War, should I say, in order to try and justify the invasion of Ukraine and in a very blatant manner. So I mention this because it's the sort of thing that is so prominent in Russia that the fact that these cancellations are happening, it cannot be buried and it will no doubt no doubt be a frustration to the Kremlin. Yet another example of how this war is impacting Russian society, just not in the ways that many predicted. Thank you very much, Francis. Dom Nichols, would you like to go next? Yeah, thanks. I would just draw people's attention, keep your eye obviously on the, on the Kremlin and the drone and all that kind of stuff. But we've reported on it recently. And so it's not so quietly in the background, but it's carrying on. Last night, there was another oil refinery, Russian oil refinery, that's gone up in smoke. So supposedly from a drone attack, this is according to TASS, so Russia's state news agency, um, in Stavropol, which is in the region of Russia, directly to the east of Crimea, just straight over the bridge. It got hit two days ago, got hit yesterday as well. Warehouse full of fuels and lubricants has gone up. I mean, this is a pattern now. This is happening, well, that's two and two, and two days. I mean, that's what, four in the last week? This really is a, a pattern and the tempo is increasing. And this is exactly what you want to do ahead of any counteroffensive. You know, you want to get rid of all the all the logistical supplies, directly oil and, and sorry, fuel and oil, so that your vehicles can't go as far. They've got to be within easy reach of logistic hubs. Russia will have to take greater risk to move that stuff around, either by road or, or rail, probably by road. So this is all, we were talking about shaping operations the other day, this is, this is it in action, we're watching it. So you know, these are small reports, they're quite dramatic to look at, but just, just keep an eye on them, because this is, this is now the tempo of these things is really, really interesting. It, it's ramping up, and I think when the tempo drops, either because the targets aren't there, or because Ukraine have deemed that they have have written down Russian logistical capability enough, then that will be a very, very interesting 48 hours after that point. 
Thank you, Dom and Francis. Aliona, as we said, very good to hear, hear you again. Would you like the very final thoughts? Yes, I, I'd like to highlight actually an interesting tendency that I've noticed, and it's kind of like a global trend that is forming now in the world. Again, Ukraine being in the center of it, unwillingly, trust trust me. We always talk about this kind of Fukuyama's end of time, and then we have Huntington's clash of civilizations, and, and that clash was always referred to East versus West. Whereas now I think we're onto something very interesting that's a bit different because we're almost seeing North versus South. First of all, we can see, you know, the the great alliance and the unity that's forming amongst Northern countries, at least Northern European. And then we have the United States and North America kind of falling into that category as well, even though we have Australia as a strong ally within AUKUS, obviously to the UK, who's supporting Ukraine strongly. But Japan, we have northern, we have Baltic states, we have Nordic states, we have the JEF alliance, again, UK-led joint expeditionary force, who are both NATO and non-NATO countries, who are the strongest supporters of Ukraine in this war, and who are basically standing up for democracy and, and human rights and, and that new global order in Europe protecting and helping Ukraine defend itself against Russia and against other authoritarian regimes. Whereas also we have, you know, the new term that was, I think, created and kind of embedded into the narrative late last year. I first heard it from uh, Ukraine's Minister of Foreign uh, Affairs, uh, Dmitry Kuleba, and then President Zelensky, but I'm sure that it was communicated with Western allies before as well, was the term that is global south that's being used more and more. And by that global south, we're, we mean African countries who have are heavily influenced by, by Russian actors, including the Wagner Group, mercenaries, and just the narrative and the propaganda in the African states. We have Latin America, who's kind of tentative. We have Brazil, we have India, who's not fully supporting Russia, but is kind of not really supporting Ukraine either. So we have those interesting tendencies with, for example, South Africa, talking about drawing out of UN Security Council and, you know, not supporting all the decisions uh, against Russia. I think their Minister of Justice recently made a statement that, you know, if Putin travels almost. He didn't actually quote Putin, but he said that, you know, they they don't feel obliged to arrest anyone who's under like the, the criminal arrest warrant from the ICC. So they're clearly taking Russia's side in, in this uh, war. And then Brazil president, even though he's was elected as the new hope for Brazil, President Lula, he did say some pretty not not very welcoming things about President Zelensky, even at the midst of war. And we saw his visit to China recently, even though, you know, everyone's visited China lately just because they've opened their borders finally after lockdown. But it was also a worrying sign. So we can see that alliance forming of North versus South in the world. And it's very interesting to see. It will be very interesting to see how that will play out because that South alliance has already got kind of its formalized platform, which is BRICS, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. So we will see where that goes and how closely that alliance gets, especially in the fight against democracy. And I do hope that those countries will not sacrifice their well-being and future just for the sake of one 
sick Russian authoritarian leader. That would make no sense. And of course, just very quickly, I'm very looking forward to this counteroffensive, who, as Dom rightly said, is, is ramping up. I'm really looking forward to that. I do hope that that's going to be the most successful, even though not the last one. And it's even if it doesn't play out exactly as it needs to, that will make some advances for Ukraine. As, as you guys know, my brother is somewhere out there. Haven't heard from him for four days, but I'm keeping hopeful. And he was telling me even a few weeks ago about how they had to retrieve from Bakhmut every day, 100 meters. They, they were losing 100 meters every day. So I do hope that they will be gaining some ground soon and that Ukraine eventually will get on a good dynamic of taking all of its territory and most importantly, all of its people back. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols. <laughs>